I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Joshua chapter 5 and chapter 6. Kids, you remember the story of Joshua? He was the one who led Israel after Moses died. He was also one of the twelve men who spied out the land early after the Exodus. And one of only two of those twelve spies who came back with a favorable report, urging the people to enter the land trusting in God. Well, by this point in the book of Joshua, remember we've been looking at passages that reveal Christ in the Old Testament. Passages that showed God's people of old what Jesus would be like. Well, at this point in Joshua, God has brought them into the land. Remember, the the border of the land was sort of marked out by the river, right? And so as they came to the Jordan River, Moses had passed away. He had given his final sermon in Deuteronomy. And God... As he had done in leading them out of Egypt, so he did leading them into Canaan. He caused the waters to divide. They walked through the midst of the Jordan River on dry land. On the other side, they circumcised those who had not received the sacrament while in the wilderness. They celebrated the Passover at Gilgal, which was just a couple miles from the river, pretty much just inside the land. That's where we are when we come to the beginning of this text. We're going to look at verses... 13 of chapter 5 through 2 of chapter 6. But but let's start at verse 10 so we see the context. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land. And the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. And it came to pass, when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, No. But as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandals off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See... I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all your men of war. You shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times. And the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout, then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every man straight before him. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, there are times... When God sends to us battles, 
that seem in our eyes unwinnable. Big battles. Think of the fight to legally protect the most vulnerable members of our society from abortion. Billionaires are bankrolling the effort to keep that legal. And those in favor of abortion depicted as a fight for a woman's right to control her own body depict us as those who are haters of women. Nonetheless, God calls us to fight for those who cannot fight for themselves, showing thereby the righteousness and the love of our God. Or think of our brothers and sisters in Hong Kong who fight for freedom. They face well-armed, well-trained, well-financed police squads, and most of them have no weapons whatsoever. And yet they fight and they stand and defend the right of their people to speak the truth, to worship freely the true God, and to avoid the slavery and the idolatry of communism. Impossible tasks, impossible battles in the eyes of men. And not all of those impossible battles are immense. Some of our uphill battles are personal and hidden. The fight waged by so many to overcome the temptation within to lust. A temptation that keeps many of them enslaved for years to the evil of pornography. That ruins their ability to interact in a healthy way with the opposite sex. That drives a wedge between them, not only and those whom they love, but between them and God. A wedge that no one is likely to see, but which is just as real as those walls of Jericho. Or the battle against the evil of bitterness and hatred that arises in the wake of offense. The offense is real. It's solid. It's concrete. But the offended one then feels powerless to get past that hurt. Perhaps the offender never apologized. Or or maybe he did, but the offense was just so great. For whatever reason, the offender remains unable to forgive. And that, that unforgiveness turns into bitterness that will that will ultimately separate him from God and from all that is good. Again, impossible battles for the believer to overcome. But God loves to ordain to set those impossible battles into our lives. Because until we face those impossible battles, we rely on us. We start to think that we're strong enough, that we're determined enough, that we're smart enough to overcome whatever fight stands before us. That's the nature of youth, isn't it? To think that we've got this, we can handle this, there's nothing that can face us that will phase us. But then we face that impossible battle, that unwinnable fight. We stand with Joshua on the plains of Jericho and we realize that we can't do it. That we are not suited to overcome this enemy. And that is when God steps forward and demonstrates that the power is not ours and the victory is not ours. But it is His and His alone. And our faith grows by unthinkable leaps and bounds. Joshua is facing an unwinnable battle. We're going to see that in a minute. And the question that must be racing through his mind is, how will God's people gain the victory? How will they, with relatively little military experience, 
conquer not just this city, but the land that awaits beyond it? That is the question that looms before Joshua at the start of our text. But suddenly, by a divine visitor, the Lord assures His servant of victory before the battle even begins. And that's our theme, a theme that we need to consider well. Because regardless of the precise nature of the battle that we each face, we will face battles. We will face wars that we can't win on our own. And yet the same God who assured Joshua of victory assures us also, through the same Savior who appeared to Joshua, the Lord assures His servants of victory before the battle even begins. And he does so, first of all, by proclaiming his presence with his servant. Which is what we see at the end here of chapter 5. Look at the situation Israel faces. They just crossed over the Jordan into Canaan. The first city they face is Jericho. This is a city about five miles inland from the river. About ten miles northwest of the Dead Sea. So if you know your, your Middle East geography... If you're looking at the map, the Mediterranean Sea is here, the Dead Sea is here, the Sea of Galilee is up here, the Jordan River comes between them. That's the border to the promised land, right? They've got a, they crossed over that river. The first city they come to is Jericho. Then they're going to enter the mountains. Once they cross over those mountains, up where Jerusalem is located, they'll be able to divide the land, conquering the southern kingdom first, then going to the northern kingdom. But first they have to get past Jericho. And that burden must have weighed on Joshua. Joshua, he's no spring chicken. He, he's seen things. He had been a leader in Israel when shortly after leave, leaving Egypt, the Israelites had to face the Amalekites. And Moses set him in charge over the armed force that fought and defeated by God's power, the Amalekites. As I said, he was one of the twelve who entered the land to spy it out. And by great faith, he encouraged the people to enter. And then for 40 years wandering in the wilderness, he served as Moses' assistant. Then God declared that he would be Moses' successor. Moses ordained him as such. And at the start of this book, we find God encouraging Joshua and instructing him. Take this people and lead them into the land. Obey my law, heed my commands, and teach them to do likewise. But above all else, he said, trust in me. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The Lord is with you. That now at the start of our text, Joshua is walking about outside Jericho. Israel still camped well behind him. Evidently, he's on the plains of Jericho on his own. Now, we're not told exactly what he's doing there. Perhaps he's praying. Perhaps he's thinking. Perhaps he's wrestling with fears. We don't know. He may have been plotting, plotting an attack strategy or, or looking for weaknesses in Jer, uh, Jericho's defenses. But in any event, he's out there before Jericho. And suddenly he sees that he's not alone. There is another man standing off a bit of a distance and this man has a sword drawn in his hand that's not insignificant 
That is not insignificant. That's the equivalent of seeing a man standing there holding a gun with his finger hovering near the trigger. This is a threat. This is someone who's ready for a fight, ready for a battle. To Joshua's eyes, there are only two possibilities. Either, most likely, the man is from Jericho or one of its allies, and therefore he is an adversary, an enemy. Or, unexpectedly, inexplicably, he has come to support Israel. That would be a blessing. Because understand that Jericho was both strategically and spiritually important for Israel. Strategically, this was a strong, significant city. Not the biggest city, not the most important city, but but should they bypass it, they would have enemies at their back and at their front. Strategically, that would be foolish. But spiritually, remember, Joshua is commanding a people whose fathers had quaked in fright at the thought of entering this land, had refused to do so. They had all died in the wilderness. But now their children stand before the land. And if they found themselves unable to conquer the very first city they came to, that same fear that haunted their fathers would suddenly inhabit them. And so Joshua, he sees this soldier before him with drawn sword, and he must know. Have reinforcements come to support Jericho? Or has God sent reinforcements for him? Are you for us or for our adversaries? And the stranger's answer is as stark as it is unexpected. He says, no. Joshua asked him a question that had one of two possible specific answers. Are you for them or are you for us? And he says, no. You've asked the wrong question. You've made the wrong assumptions. No. But as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And hearing that, Joshua falls to his face. He begins to worship. And he asks for guidance. You see, Joshua understood something immediately upon this stranger's words that we must understand well. This stranger on the plains of Jericho was no mere man. Joshua was not on equal footing with this commander who stood before him, but instead he had just encountered someone infinitely greater. This stranger is God, come in human form. Not the first time God has done that. In the Garden of Eden, he walked with Adam and Eve, so he came in some human form. In Genesis 18, he, accompanied by two angels, came and visited Abraham and spoke with him face to face as a man. In Genesis 32, we read how Jacob wrestled all night with God, who came in the form of a man. It was God himself appearing to Joshua, Jesus appearing before time. We know that, not only because of Joshua's response, but because he says, take off your sandals, because the ground on which you are standing is holy. Only God can make the ground Upon which he appears holy. That's why he told Moses at the burning bush the same thing. Take off your sandals. The ground on which you are standing is holy. Because in that burning bush, Moses had approached God. And so at the beginning of chapter 6, without missing a beat, it says that now the Lord, Yahweh, spoke 
to Joshua. It was the same one. It was the same man. This was God Himself. It was Christ come before the time. And that's why Joshua suddenly bowed to his face, showing the greatest honor that he could possibly show. Worshipping. That, that's, that's worthy only of God. And Joshua knew that. But he worshipped this one who stood before him. And he sought guidance, recognizing that this one who stood before him, this great soldier, possessed all the wisdom and power known to man. Back in Exodus 32, God promised that He would send His angel to lead God's people into the land. To guide them and direct the way that they should go. To subdue the peoples before them. To call them into submission to the Lord their God. And in this man was the fulfillment of that promise. As though to emphasize that fact, He says, as It says, Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot. For the place where you're standing is holy. He wanted to emphasize, I am in fact God. But what was the significance of Him coming in this form? Notice He comes as the commander of the army of the Lord. As the commander. That's a common word. It just means the chief, the leader, the the general. The one in charge. Army is a, a common Word for any military or armed force. But it's that word in combination with Yahweh. Sava Yahweh. The army of the Lord. That's the significant phrase. The phrase had been used a number of times and would be used a number of times to refer to Israel, to God's people. In Exodus 12, verse 41, after 430 years, we're told, all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. That's referring to Israel in all of its tribes. But it also can refer to something greater, God's angelic army. That's what we see in in 1 Kings 22, when the angels surrounding God's throne, this is according to the prophet Micaiah, are referred to as all the host or all the army of the Lord. It's referring to the angelic host. And so in 2 Kings 6, when the Syrians surrounded the city in which the prophet Elisha was living, and his servant was terrified by seeing this Syrian army, the prophet prayed that God would open his eyes, and suddenly the the servant saw horses and chariots of fire surrounding the army of the Syrians. The army of the Lord, the angelic army. And so, of course, Jesus could say to Peter that if he wished, he could call upon the Lord. And he would send twelve legions of angels. So when he speaks of the army of the Lord, he's referring to all of the military might at his command. All of the people of Israel from all twelve of the tribes. But also the angelic host of spiritual forces that support and overcome those before them, even before they arrive. That means this man, he commands all of the military might that Joshua and his people could ever need. He is the sovereign king who reigns not only over Israel, but over all the nations. He determines the course of every man. And his might is matched by no one. What a comfort that must have been to Joshua. This was confirmation 
to the leader of God's people. God had promised to lead His people into the land, to destroy their enemies before them. And now He had come to fulfill His promise. He came in the form of a man. But that man possessed the power and the authority of God Himself. That's Christ. That's our Lord, our Savior, and our King. And that's the one whom the faithful in Israel have always been taught to trust. So it is for us today. Because we do face battles in our lives. Not battles, most of us, to destroy cities, but but battles to destroy the sin that infects us. Battles to conquer the power that the world wields over us. Battles to overcome the destroying strategies of Satan. Battles to capture for Christ those whom He has called for Himself. Those battles are just as real. Their effects just as eternal. And more so as physical warfare. And on our own, we can't fight those battles. We can't withstand the power of the evil one or the world or our own flesh. We can't turn the heart of even one sinner. We can't win a single victory for the Lord. But praise God, we are never on our own. Christ is with us always, just as He promised. His power is absolute over men, over angels, over nations, over time and history themselves. The victory is His. He's already conquered. Our calling is simply to trust in Him. But now our text turns us back to the problem before Joshua, and that's Jericho. Verse 1 of chapter 6 shows us that this city posed a significant problem. But the commander, who is Jesus, he speaks and he declares his deliverance, which is our second and final point. Think for a moment. Before we hear what he has to say, think for a moment on Jericho's situation. Cities like this, we know from archaeology, we know from historical records, cities like this were well fortified to defend themselves. And Jericho, from what we know from archaeology, was no different. Typically they were situated on a rise, on a hill. Jericho was situated in a plain, but on top of a rise on that plain. That was important because it forced attackers to attack from uphill. That's a disadvantage. means that they're always expending energy trying to climb up to the city. They're always exposed. And meanwhile, the people from the city have gravity on their favor when they launch their projectiles. That hill is typically covered with deep gravel, which makes it hard to climb. Slows down the attackers. Makes it hard for them to establish any kind of structure to support their attack. The city is surrounded by walls. In Jericho's case, two walls. The first, from what we can tell from archaeological digs, was about six feet wide. 30 feet tall. That's a substantial, imposing wall. It's not something you're just going to knock over. But then about 15 or 20 feet inside of that, there was a second wall, about 12 feet thick, also 30 feet high. So if you get through the first wall, you really haven't accomplished all that much. You've still got another wall waiting. And strengthening those two walls built in between were houses and other buildings, causing the walls to be that much stronger, that much more impenetrable. 
course, there were gates to provide access to the city. A couple of large gates, a few smaller ones for convenience, but these were all able to be completely shut off by thick wood reinforced with iron, and in some cases by stone. Now that's the normal defense of Jericho. But now it's buttoned up even more tightly. According to verse 1, it was securely shut up. Now that phrase renders a, a Hebrew phrase that can't be really accurately rendered. It's actually two different verbs, different participles. Which if we rendered it as literally as possible would, would be something like the city had been shut up and was being shut up. In other words, it indicated that they had already securely fastened all the gates and buttoned up the city. And they were continuing to add to it. They were continuing to strengthen it. They were continuing to make sure that not a soul could get in and no one could get out. Because they feared Israel. Joshua knew that. He heard what Rahab had told the spies when she said, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Remember, she's from Jericho. I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. They're terrified of Israel, and Israel's camp just across the plain. So they have buttoned up this city as tight as it can possibly be buttoned up. Now, why bother to tell us this? What's the purpose of pointing out how secure Jericho was? Well, folks, we need to see how hopeless the situation was that Joshua faced. Because for Joshua now, there are only three options. Humanly speaking, there are only three options. They can seek to penetrate the defenses of Jericho to open a frontal attack. That means either going over or going under. Going over means approaching through open ground, uphill, on gravel, so as to somehow surmount that 30-foot wall, all the while being attacked by projectiles being cast out of the city. Rocks, stones, arrows, you name it. Or they can try to go under, tunneling through the clay and the mud and the rock that lay beneath. That's option one. Option two is they can wait out the city and camp all around it, ensure that the city can't receive any resupply, and then wait until their food runs out. But that could take years. And that's just the first city of the land. Option three is bypass Jericho, save it for later, but that's no option at all. Strategically, that's a good way to get an enemy on both sides of you. And spiritually... That would so demoralize the people that they might as well stop right away. So really, none of the options is good. That's Joshua's dilemma. But now the commander of the army of the Lord has come. He who speaks to Joshua is God the Son, fully man, standing there in flesh and blood, but also fully God. This is the God before whom Egypt and its gods crumbled, who handily conquered the kings Sihon and Og and their people, who supplied and defended his people for 40 years in the wilderness, day in and day out. Before this God, Jericho poses no problem. He's the Lord. He's the creator, the sustainer, the savior, the king. No one can stand before him. Now, Joshua, you know, it's not insignificant that he wasn't named Joshua at birth. 
His parents named him Hosea, which means salvation. But Moses renamed him Yehoshua, which means Jehovah saves. You see, God's people didn't just need help. They didn't just need support. They didn't just need allies regardless of what quarter they came from. They needed the help of Yahweh. They needed the help of the Lord, the true God. Nothing else could even begin to help them face this battle. And it is the Lord who proclaims, I have given Jericho into your hand. It's king and the mighty men of valor. How he would do that, he goes on to tell in the following verses. And it's a mighty strange way of deliverance which no man would ever think to consider. But really the means by which he uses to deliver his people is almost beside the point. The point is that Yahweh, the point is that the Lord, the Christ, who stands before Joshua, he proclaims, I am the king and I have decreed the victory. All you must do is trust in me. All you must do is follow my commands. But the victory is already yours. Notice the past tense. It's already accomplished. Sure, the city's still standing there. But the victory over it is done. And the very same, brothers and sisters, the very same is true for you. Doesn't matter what the battle is. Doesn't matter how vicious or how dug in the enemy. The battle belongs to the Lord and the victory belongs to Him. How will we win the nations? Or just our nation for Christ. How will we call forth the elect when we are so small and so scattered and so weak? Well, we can try all the schemes that the mind of man can devise, but that's silly. That won't win anybody to anything other than a little entertainment. We can try to coerce men into the faith by... The point of the sword, as it were, but that's useless. Because at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, we can't change a single heart. We don't have the power. We can't transform a single mind. Insert faith into a single soul. We cannot do it. But God, He promises in Isaiah 55... As the rain comes down and snow from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. And he tells us in Romans 10, That it is that word which he sovereignly controls that will transform the hearts and the minds and the lives of those whom God has chosen for himself. The power of God, of Christ alone, will bring forth every one whom he has chosen for himself. And he will use us as the soldiers in his command. Or again, how can we turn our land from sin to embrace righteousness? Take abortion. Humanly speaking, that fight is impossible. There's too much money on the other side. The media is in their corner. The courts have shown consistently that they're willing to make up laws out of whole cloth in order to preserve this right to kill children. 
But we don't fight merely by the strength and the wisdom of men. We fight by the strength of God. Psalm 82 tells us, Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. That's our calling. That's His command. And when we complain that we're too weak, that we're outgunned, that we're not up to the battle, He says in Isaiah 40, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, He increases strength. The battle is the Lord's, and so is the victory. And likewise, over those personal battles that we fight in our hearts, you say, I can't do it. I can't reconcile with that person. I just can't forgive that offense. But listen, is your heart harder and thicker than the walls of Jericho, which the Lord knocked down flat? Is their offense greater than all of the sins you have committed or will commit against the Lord our God, which Jesus caused to be forgiven on the cross? Christ has conquered your sin. You are free. And Christ has given you the power to forgive the sin against you with a power that is infinitely greater than yours. The same goes for the lust, the greed, the rebellion that tempts us. Romans 8 says we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. 2 Corinthians 2 says thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. Because of Christ... We have the power to overcome those sins. Yes, we'll still struggle against them. Yes, the battle will rage on, but we will have the victory. Because Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. All you must do is what Joshua was called to do. Believe that God is greater than the enemy who looms before you. Know that He loves you, has chosen you, and will never forsake you. Trust that He knows what is best for you and therefore obey whatever He says, even if it sounds as silly as marching around the city and giving a shout. And just as sure as those walls of Jericho fell flat, so ultimately will the enemies before you. You might not recognize the way it comes about. You might not see it today or tomorrow. But that victory is already secured in Christ. But what we must do is trust Trust. Trust in Him. And He who died and rose again to reconcile you to your Father, He will supply you according to every need. And the glory for the victory will be His. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, we are weak. We are weak and unable to fight the fight. We know it. And yet we're still tempted to trust in ourselves. Still tempted to rest in our own wisdom. Forgive us, Father. Deepen our faith. And give us the courage to stand before that which we fight with our eyes upon You. Knowing that the commander of the army of the Lord has come that He has proclaimed the victory, and that ours is but to follow Him, to obey Him, and to know that 
that what Jesus does, what Jesus proclaims, will always be what's best for us. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.